Uh, We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2, you're looking at verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Once you make your way there, uh, if you look up, uh, that way I'll know that you are ready uh, for me to read this portion of Scripture that we will spend time in this morning. Um, If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. Uh, Feel free to grab one of those. You can keep it. It's our gift to you. Uh, I'll be teaching from the ESV, so I encourage you to follow along. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. Uh, Would you hear now uh, the word of God? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let us go to him in prayer. Father, uh, we are grateful for this opportunity to gather together and to hear instruction from your word alone. Uh, Father, I pray that you would use this time uh, that we have for our good and your glory. I pray, Father, that those that may have walked in uh, heavy laden, those that may be burdened by the trials and tribulations all around them, Lord, would see comfort in Christ. Uh, those that may have walked in uh, with a sense of arrogance and pride as if they, they need nothing that your word has to offer, I ask, God, that you would humble them, uh, that you would bring conviction where needed. Uh, for those that may not know you today, Father, would you soften hearts? Would you uh, draw them to yourself through your grace? May they see Jesus as the ultimate answer for all that they need. Father, I ask that you would illuminate this text, that you would use this portion of Scripture for our good. And so I ask, Lord, what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, and what we are not you would make us by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen. So today we continue in our series as we look at uh, our values as a church. As a reminder, we have four core values as a church family. Uh, Those are doctrine, discipleship, devotion, and deployment. A few weeks ago, we started this series by looking at the short letter written by Jude as a reminder of the importance of contending for true and right doctrine. What we believe matters. And we must adhere to God's word if we are to remain a faithful church. Last week, Pastor Brandon taught on the theme of discipleship from Jesus' instructions from Matthew 28. Go make disciples. We are commanded, we are instructed to be involved in disciple making. And that takes relational equity. We must be involved. And he gave us a really good list and instructions on how we are to do that to be faithful. This morning, we double-click on devotion, looking at what does it mean to be a church that is devoted to one another. We have a definition for devotion Uh, on our website, and so I want to share that with you so that way we can all make sure we are under the same understanding, and it's this. CCF defines devotion as a sincere commitment to the spiritual and physical needs of one another 
for the glory of God. We want to be devoted to the spiritual and physical needs of one another as a church body. As I was studying in preparation for this sermon, I ran across an article published in The Atlantic with the title, The Misunderstood Reason Millions of Americans Stopped Going to Church. Uh, This article provided some very uh, staggering stats. The journalist writes, I quote, 40 million Americans have stopped attending church in the past 25 years. He goes on, that's something like 12% of the population, and it represents the largest concentrated change in church attendance in history. So 40 million Americans in the past 25 years have left the church. I mean, that is a staggering number. The author goes on to reference a book that's written by two Christian authors uh, that draws on a survey of over 7,000 Americans attempting to explain why people have left churches. He writes, the book suggests that the defining problem driving out most people who leave is, and here we have it, just how American life works in the 21st century. He goes on and says, contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for any type of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or as one ages, the prospects of one's children. He says, workism reigns in America. We are addicted to work, productivity, being caught up in what we can do in our own kingdom. And he says, religious community included. He goes on, and I think this is the most clarifying statement in his whole article and diagnosis of the problem. He says, after identifying the problem, the tragedy of American churches is that they have been so caught up in this same world ideology that we now find they have nothing to offer these suffering people that can't be more found, easily found somewhere else. American churches have too often been content to function as a kind of vaguely spiritual NGO, an organization of detached individuals who meet together for religious services that inspire them, provide practical life advice, or offer positive emotional experiences. Too often, the church has not been a community that through its preaching and living bears witness to another way to live. Why do I bring this up? Because I believe this journalist shares some much-needed light on the fact that the byproduct of the entertainment and experience-driven church culture, which is so very prevalent in our day today, is departure and detachment. See, if we focus on experience, if we, ex- if we focus on our emotions, they will not last. So what does this tell us? What do we learn from the statistics? What do we learn from looking at what has happened in our culture, in our day and age, in the church? 
Well, it tells us that worldly strategies are insufficient for long-term church growth. And I'm not just talking about numerically here. I'm talking about our personal growth as Christians. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago, the church is a sanctification factory. The goal is to be sanctified, to be moved towards the image of Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit, through the accountability of church members, and the oversight of godly elders who help to lead in the direction that God has called the church to go. Listen, gimmicks, pragmatism, trendiness, and relevance have short shelf life. They don't last. They come and they go. I'm 42 years old, and I've seen many trends, thank goodness, go by, right? Thankfully, guys aren't still wearing Jinko jeans. If you're around my age, you know what that is. It's a really bad look. Jokers were over your feet and everything. It was weird. Look them up later, some of you young folks. But my aim here today is to show us that God's primary plan for growth, that's numerically and individually as Christians, is through simple, ordinary devotion to him and his people. It's through the practical, day-to-day, mundane activities that you and I will find ourselves in. And I want to do that by identifying five commitments of a devoted church that is found today in our text in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. I want to give you these five, and then we will work through them for my note takers out here. One, we will see a commitment to gathering. Commitment to gathering. Two, we will see a commitment to expectation. Expectation. Third, we will see a commitment to generosity. Generosity. Fourth, a commitment to hospitality. Fifth, a commitment to gratitude. Commitment to gratitude. Before we get into our text today, I want to just give us some context because obviously we're not starting off here in Acts chapter 1. And so I want to give us quick context of where we are here in Acts chapter 2. If you recall in chapter 1, uh, Jesus ascends to heaven and he tells his apostles, his disciples that are there that he will send the Holy Spirit to empower them and then they will be his witness to the ends of the earth. He says, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to work in and through you, and you're going to be phenomenal witnesses because of this. Then, on the day of Pentecost, while they are prayerfully waiting, the Holy Spirit comes just as Jesus said he would. And then Peter goes out and preaches an amazing sermon, and 3,000 people come to faith. They repent and believe the gospel. Peter preaches, the spirit works, hearts are renewed, and they're saved. The New Testament church is then born. I want you to imagine that type of experience for a moment. I want you to imagine being in this environment where a sermon has been preached and 3,000 people come to faith. They repent and they are baptized. Uh, There were a lot of different uh, pools and different uh, washing areas in that place in that time. And so a baptism of 3,000 people probably took a little while, but it was something that could have been accomplished. I mean, this is the power of God at work, right? I, I mean, this had to have been a mountaintop experience for the people that were participating here. I mean, I can imagine some emotions are, are, are going on that are, are very high and, and very in tune. I assume that a lot of emotions must have ensued after everything was all said and done as well. 
But I want us to notice here the simplicity that follows. Immediately after we read, and Dr. Luke, who gives us this account of the Holy Spirit working through the early church, we see here that simple, practical means are until. Look at verse 42. And they, who was the they? The 3,000 new Christians. It's the new folks that have just come to faith. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So here we see our first commitment. What do we see? We see a commitment to gathering. We see that these new Christians, after they had come to faith, they spent time together. They, they came together to do certain things. Uh, the text tells us that they prioritized gathering with one another over other opportunities. Uh, brothers and sisters, what is your priority? Uh, what do you prioritize in your life? There are four activities that identified this early church's gathering. Uh, one, we see the apostles' teaching. Now, this would have been Old Testament. And also, uh, the, remember, the New Testament has not been written at this time, but the apostles were likely teaching all that Jesus had taught them. Also, what Jesus had taught them uh, the 40 days before his ascension. And so they're teaching the congregation, those new Christians, God's truth. What that means for us today is that we gather around God's word. Listen, studying God's word is the most important thing that we do as we gather. If you don't know, uh, our church uh, subscribes to the regulative principle. Uh, what that means is that everything that we do is centered around the word of God. Meaning we read the word, we pray the word, we preach the word, we sing the word, and we also see the word. We see the word in the Lord's Supper, in baptism. Okay, so the word is saturated in everything that we do. We may not only sing psalms, but every song that we sing is theologically rich in God's word. We may not only pray scriptural prayers, but we aim to pray scriptural themed, theological themed prayers that align with God's word. See, th that is what being devoted to his word means. Fellowship is something else that we see here that they were committed to. This word fellowship is a word, uh, its root word is koinonia. And what this means here is participation or sharing in something, a, a, a unification that was far beyond simple fellowship or simple friendship or fellowship around uh, a shared common interest. This is a deep relationship that we see that can only be possible through Jesus and Jesus alone. See, if you don't know, we are all that are saved brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't need any extra unification methods. We have already been blood bought by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the, the one who gave his life so that we could be adopted into the family of God. So when you become a Christian, that's why you should join a local church. So you can express that unification in the family of God in a local expression. There's something that happens when we become Christian, and that something is immediate adoption into a large family of brothers and sisters. Some of you don't have large families. Some of you don't have great families. But guess what? That's natural. By God's grace, he's called you into something else. 
By God's grace, he has called you into a family of believers with greater fellowship than could ever be had in your natural means. Listen, apart from Christ, that's impossible. It's only through Christ that this type of true fellowship can happen. This is how they practice the one another's as well. There's over uh, 50 one another's in Scripture. See, the one another's are things that we do uh, to one another. We, we bear one another's burdens. We're hospitable to one another. We care for one another. We weep with one another. We rejoice with one another. We love one another. Where does that happen? In the local church. It happens within the fellowship of believers. We also see that these Christians committed themselves to breaking of bread. Uh, this here in this context, in this verse, uh, would mean the Lord's table. They, they looked to the Lord's table at their gatherings so that they could reflect on Christ's work on their behalf. See, we just did this. This is one of the two ordinances of the church today. And we continue on doing it together as a church to remind each other that the reason why we are his, the reason why we are here is because of Jesus Christ alone. As Pastor Gabe mentioned, uh, part of our ob observance of the Lord's Supper is a reminder to one another of our salvation in Christ. We affirm one another's confirmation, their uh, presentation, uh, that they are walking in a way that is worthy of the manner to which they've been called. Uh, we say to one another when we observe communion together that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and Christ alone. That's why we don't turn the lights off and we don't go into to the corners and, you know, make it this individual little practice. No, we, we say we do it together. Look around. Brothers and sisters in Christ, eternally bound for glory. Praise be to God for that. That happens with this type of fellowship. And this is an essential element for Christian churches. Uh, frequency can vary, but it must be present in true churches. Another thing we see here that was essential in their gathering was prayer. Listen, it, it grieves my heart to know of the number of churches that when they gather, neglect to pray. Now, some, what we see a lot of today are the transitional prayers, right? The prayer where you've got your eyes closed because uh, they're praying and then you look up and there's like a whole new set on the stage. And, and so all they're doing is trying to just move pieces from one place to another rather than taking time with God's people to say, we're gathered here for his glory, not our entertainment. We're gathered here to, to pray spiritual prayers, to encourage, to uplift, to confess. And brothers and sisters, we, we see this practice here. Simple, ordinary means. We pray. First Timothy 2, when instructing young Timothy in matters of the church, what does Paul tell young Timothy? He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. It's in the pastoral epistles. He's saying this is something that is essential to the gathered church. We should be devoted to prayer. So a couple of points of applications and means of questions for you to just ponder on. Now, first off, let me just say, I am extremely encouraged by our church. I mean, I, I really am. And it's such a joy to, to be with you all. 
And it's such a joy to be a part of this fellowship. And it's such a joy as I was preparing the sermon and just thinking through some of these things and, and putting our church against these categories. And I'm like, like, yes, we can always grow, but by God's grace, man, the Lord has been so kind to us. And he's encouraged us in so many ways to, to really practice these things well. So if you're, if you're new to Christ Covenant Fellowship, if you're visiting, man, let me just encourage you. This is a body of believers that, that practices devotion pretty well. Pretty well. But we must, as Christians, we do want to continue to grow, don't we? We want to we grow we want to be strengthened. We want to know that we're continuing to put priority on the gathering of believers. Now, this happens in two ways, right? One, the corporate Sunday gathering. I mean, are you prioritizing the Sunday gathering? Do you just come to the Sunday gathering when there isn't other things more important going on? Now, I'm not trying to be legalistic here. Coming to church gatherings is not going to make you a Christian uh, in, in, in any way, shape, or form. But your priorities are fruit of your faith. And here's what I mean. If the gathering is optional to you, consistently optional because you think there's better things to do, or rather, you may, uh, things that come up that continually take the place of the gathering with God's people. And I encourage you to check your heart. What are you prioritizing? What is essential in your life? Now, we will miss church gatherings for vacations, for trips, for work, uh, trips, whatever the case may be. That's they will happen. You may be sick. That is true. But if it's a headache every week, if it's uh, just didn't sleep well, I haven't slept well uh, in seven years. <laughs> Zion seven in our house. And you, just, you don't sleep well with kids. But if it's just constantly something else that takes the priority of coming together with your family to worship your creator. I ask you to check your priorities. Check your priorities. Let me just encourage you too, uh, when you are away, uh, one practice that we have as a family is if we're away on vacation, uh, we worship with another church. Uh, Pastor Brandon is at the beach right now, and he texted uh, the elder group this morning, and uh, he was asking about a church, uh, if we'd ever heard of it, and because that's where his family is worshiping this morning. So although you may not be here in this gathering, you should prioritize the gathering. Uh, we like to show our kids that there are other Christians all over. They may worship a little different. They may do different things and have different activities than we do, but that's okay. Okay, but we want to be with God's people. It is the Lord's day. Let us give him praise. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 reminds us, let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And here's how. Let us not neglect meeting together as some have made a habit, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, the public gathering is very important. Also, small group participation is essential. I mean, we'll see this here more, but there's the public gathering, and then later on we see the smaller gathering. So are, are you engaged, church, in small group activity? Are, are you sharing your life with a core group of people within the church to help you to bear the burdens, to celebrate the celebrations, to provide encouragement when needed? Are you involved in the life of the church outside of just the Sunday gathering? It's an important matter. 
Second, we see commitment here to expectation. Commitment here to expectation. Look at verse 43 with me. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, let me clarify a few things here. One, I believe that the signs and wonders that were being done here were unique to this time because it was affirming the message that the apostles were giving. Okay? So they're, they're preaching something pretty radical here. Think about it for a moment. Jesus had just been killed on a cross. Okay? Then he rose again. He showed himself to over 500 witnesses. People saw him. And then he ascends to heaven. So now these apostles are out here preaching this message that sounded pretty crazy, pretty ridiculous to the normal mind. It's like, hey, uh, let me just tell you about Jesus. If you look back at the sermon that Peter preaches, you know, he says, Jesus, the one that came, the Messiah, the one that you all killed. Yeah, so... Uh, He's he's in heaven. He's at the right hand of God. And if you repent and believe and have faith in him, although you don't see him anymore, like he's going to save you. And so it was a very, very strange message for many to hear with a normal state of mind. And so what is happening here? What does God do? He uses and gives these signs and wonders to Uh, further affirm the message that the apostles are preaching. The message that they're preaching, that they're saying here, is now being shown to be true by the fact that not only do these apostles have the unique ability that they spent time with Jesus, which is a requirement to be an apostle, which means that there are no apostles today, no matter what anyone tries to tell you. But there are these different ways that they are being used to point to God's glory, to affirm the message that is being communicated. Also, we must remember that Acts is an historical narrative, meaning that some of the writing is prescriptive, uh, meaning that's for us to do, but some of it is also descriptive, meaning we're just reading about what happened then. How do we know what's descriptive and prescriptive? I'm glad you asked. The rules of biblical interpretation teach that when something is repeated in Scripture and ascribed as an ongoing quality or identifier of the church, meaning we see it over and over, we see it come up again, we see instructions to the church to do these things, we can claim it as prescriptive. And in the case of continued signs and wonders as normative in the church today, Scripture does not present us with evidence that we should expect miracles as occurred in the first century church. We don't see that. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, furthermore, we read the, possible, uh, the apostles were the ones that were doing the signs and wonders. And we do not have apostles today. So we shouldn't expect the type of signs and wonders that happened in the early church. But, skirk, we should come with expectation. Listen, if if you're just treating the gathered church as something that is just kind of a dread and just got to make it through and, you know, we just got to just kind of check the box today so we can go on to our Sunday activities. Let me just tell you, you will never, ever get out of the local church what God intends for you to get out of the local church. This is not just some let's get together Let's hear someone talk for 45 minutes and let's sing some songs and see how everybody's doing and then go on about our merry way. Listen, brothers and sisters, 
We are coming to meet with God. We're coming to, to hear from the Lord. We're coming to worship the King of Kings, the sovereign, the one who has pulled us out of the domains of darkness and has declared us righteous, not on our works, but his works, and have saved us and called us to an eternal hope. Friends, do you really understand what is happening when we gather as God's people? Do you really understand the, the gravity, the weight of coming together as his people, unified, singing praises to the king? Listen, when we begin from a posture of expectation that says we are going to meet with God when we go to church, the gathered people, we understand that something special happens. And it prepares us in different ways. Psalm 122.1, one, the psalmist writes, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. 133.1, one, how good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity. So church, what is your attitude towards the church? What is your attitude towards your brothers and sisters? And what is your attitude towards the gathering? I mean, are you expectant? Are you prayerfully asking the Lord of your life to work in the lives of your church family? You know, the reason why we should pray for one another is so that way we know what each other's needs are. And as we're entering into Sunday worship, we should be prayerfully lifting up our brothers and sisters, asking God to work in whatever specific areas of their life that we know that they need extended grace. We have to be a prayerful people that are expectant for what God can and will do by his mercy. You know, as you have kids and as you're talking with your children uh, about the gathering on Sundays, I mean, how are you presenting it to them? Are you talking to them as uh, we get to go worship with the church today? Or we have to go and worship. Nope, you have to go. There is a have to go if they don't want to go. But we must, brothers and sisters, we've got to learn to communicate to our own family, to the world around us in a way that, to even help us to remember that we are coming expectant for God to work in ways that are far beyond ourselves. So think about that today. Think about it. Ask yourself, how am I preparing for worship? And then prayerfully go into next week and ask God to help you. I mean, it's not rocket science here. Third, we see commitment to generosity. Commitment to generosity. Verses 44 through 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now listen. This doesn't mean that all Christians are supposed to sell everything that they have and move into communes and, and live in some uh, communal society that uh, everybody doesn't have property and we all share everyone's resources. We see in verse 46 that these folks still had houses because they had people in their houses. So that's not what this is teaching us. But... 
it does mean that what we should do is we should hold our possessions loosely. We should hold our possessions very loosely. See, this early church was generous. They cared for one another. They provided for one another's needs here. They gave whatever they had. They were uh, contrary to our culture's idea of individual success being the motive of their existence. Man, doesn't it preach to the world when we show the world that the things that we have are not ours, but they're God's to use how he wants to use them. See, we show the world around us. We share with one another. When we care enough to give sacrificially, not just out of the abundance, but sacrificially. Uh, I remember one time I was in between vehicles and had a church member that said, hey, you can use my car as long as you need. And I'm sure that inconvenienced them. They had two, but there's, there were two people in the home. I mean, just giving something simple in that way and saying, hey, I have it. You can use it. It's yours. It was such a blessing to me and my family. Questions we must ask, right, are like, how are we stewarding what we have? Are we living with a posture of generosity? Are we living in a posture of give me all I can get and maybe I'll leave you some crumbs? How are we treating our finances? I mean, Jesus talks a lot about money. He talks a lot about wherever our treasure, there is our heart. See, where we give our money is often where we give our time, our attention. It's where we spend a lot of our emotional equity in as well. And so naturally, if we are to be a devoted people and to follow and to see what this early church, the very beginning of the early church from a practical standpoint, lived in generous ways towards one another, giving what they had, ensuring that nobody amongst them had a need. Galatians 6.10 reminds us, right? So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Listen, church, I have been so encouraged by this body of believers. I mean, even just from giving tithes and offerings, the budget that our church started with. And uh, I mean, it's just amazing the generosity uh, that you all have brought to this church body. Um, the meal trains that you all provide for one another, the, the giving of your time in that way, the child care that's offered by so many of you to others. And hey, listen, students especially, man, if you don't have money, that's a real good way to serve. Hey, all the parents in the room would love a date night. Amen? So listen, that's a great way to just steward your time. Time, talent, treasure. We steward our time as well. I mean, I've gotten gift cards and um, uh, gift cards to restaurants with uh, child care attached. I mean, that's, that's like a win-win right there. You're going to give me a gift card uh, where I can take my wife out. You're also going to come watch my kids. Like, that's amazing. But this is a way that we show generosity towards one another. So we just must ask ourselves, right? Are we living with a life that is marked with generosity. I mean, this is a sure way to be a church that is committed to devotion. Fourth and fifth, we see in our final two verses here, we see a commitment to hospitality and a commitment to gratitude. Look at verse 46. And 
day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, that didn't last long because we know that with all people, they didn't have much favor for a long time because they began to be persecuted. But they started off here with a stronghold of united Christians that were able to then face the persecutions that were ahead. And listen, uh, and I'm not a doomsday guy, but I would say that we must as a church, as local united churches, other like-minded brothers and sisters in this community and beyond, we must, we see that we are facing times where we must stick together. We must band together and we must stand strong for the word of God, encouraging one another and others to do the same. And here's what we see here. I mean, these people couldn't get enough of being together. I mean, they're spending time together, the the public gathering, the private gathering. And privately, what are they doing? They're showing hospitality. They're having people in their homes. They're, They're spending time with people. They're sharing meals together. Listen, some of the greatest conversations that Uh, we have with church members are over a good meal. You just get to know someone. I mean, it's very likely for us to have people in our home two or three times a week. And I don't say that to brag. I just tell you that we have learned that that is an important fact of the matter that as a church, we must share life with one another. If you haven't been to my house yet, don't worry. You will get an invite soon. We spend time together. We get to know one another. We do this in small groups, but we also do this individually with people that we may not have the opportunity to strategically have as much time with through the means of the church. So are you showing hospitality in this way? Are you having people in your home? And listen, don't think that having people in your home means that everything has to be perfect. Believe me, if you've been to my house, you know that that's not the case. Show them. Older couples show the younger couples what life looks like. Young, spend time with young folks. Spend time together. Same stage of life. How are you dealing with this issue? How are you dealing with that? I mean, this is the way that we work to show hospitality. This also comes within the sphere of being generous, stewarding what we have, sharing meals, sharing our home, opening up our space to others. We also see here that these folks were committed to gratitude. Committed to gratitude. I mean, it says here that they were praising God. They're praising God for what he has done and for what he is continuing to do. Psalmist is helpful here too, right? Psalm 104. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. And into his courts with praise, be thankful unto him and bless his name. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a phenomenal book, Life Together. If you haven't read that, I commend that to you. And he says in there, quote, It is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed, allowed to live in community with God's people. Friends, is that the way that you are looking at the church? That it is by God's grace that we get to do life with one another. Or, as some, is it an inconvenience? Is it always an inconvenience whenever church things come about? When people ask you for help, are we giving praise and glory to God that he's given us a body of believers that we get the opportunity to serve. 
Listen, I believe that Christians should be the most thankful people in the world. I mean, what does Apostle Paul say, right? Even, even in his downtimes, he says, I'm, I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And too often I see Christians, and I get in this way myself, right, where, where I, I let the, the things of the world, whether it be my physical or whether, you know, aches and pains or, or whatever circumstance I may be dealing with, and I allow that to, to bring me to a place where I'm just sorrowful. I forgot all about the rejoicing. Listen, if you are a Christian, you always have reason to give praise to God. Look back to the cross. Remember what has been done on your behalf. And then look forward to eternity where you don't have to deal with any of this mess. And then live in light of that. Yes, I'm not, yes, we'll have bad days. I'm not promoting any type of just fake, like, oh, yeah, everything's fine. No, we, we share one of those burdens. We, we share with our heartaches. But we cannot let them destroy us. We worship. We give thanks to God. As in closing here, we see the results of being a devoted church. And that's growth. We see here church growth. What does this last portion of 47 say? It says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Listen, when we commit ourselves to church growth God's way, he does the work. Simple, ordinary means the practical, day-to-day, mundane activities, the Lord is at work there. The Lord is at work. Listen, if you want to do something big for God, which I hear many times, treat ordinary things as if they have eternal value, because they do. God is pleased with simple devotion to him and his people. He's pleased with that. He uses that. Once again, CCF, I'm encouraged by you all. It has been such a joy to see our church practice this value in such God-honoring ways. And my prayer is that we would continue pressing forward for our good and his glory. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look back and see how you have designed your people to live. Father, would we be a church that adheres to your word, that stands firm on doctrine, that disciples one another, and that is continually devoted to each other and to you. Father, I pray that we would be a church that is truly committed to being generous, to gathering together, to showing hospitality, to caring for one another as we need it. So, Lord, let us remember that we are forever grateful for your work on our behalf. And, Father, we are forever grateful for your church. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.